Section 40 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Concluding Chapter, Part 3, Language and Literature, Vision of Piers Plowman, The Canterbury Tales. As has been already said in other terms, Latin was the language of business and French the language of society. In the earlier part of the reign of Edward III, graver works were composed in Latin, but all the higher literature was in French, and in subject and form a close imitation of French originals. The chivalrous romance and the legends of martyrs and the fableaux or rhyming tales had given way to the now universal passion for allegorical poetry, in which the characters introduced were impersonations of virtues and vices, such as was the romance of the Rose, by the translation of which Chaucer first gained the ear of the people. Up to the beginning of the 14th century, the supremacy of the French language in England had been almost unchallenged. Its introduction was by no means due to the Norman conquest, though that event undoubtedly gave it a new impulse, for it had been the court language of Edward the Confessor. It is said that William the Conqueror tried to learn English, but his successors made no such attempt. The Trouvères, who sang in the rugged Languedoc, found a special encouragement at court from the two queens of Henry I, and during the long succession of the earlier Angevin sovereigns, who were to all intents and purposes Frenchmen, the royal influence was favorable to the growth of French. The two Eleanors, whom Henry II and Henry III brought from the south of France, carried with them the soft Provençal, the long duck of the troubadours, and in the reign of the last-named sovereign such was the undisguised preference of the court for everything French, and such the consequent influx of adventurers of that nation, that the ancient English element in the people seemed a second time threatened with helotry or extinction. But all this time the English language had survived. The Saxon Chronicle comes to an abrupt conclusion in the reign of King Stephen, but about a century and a half before the reign of Edward III, the vernacular again crops up, mingling in grotesque incongruity with the Latin of the mystery plays, the less dignified scenes of which were sometimes in the vulgar tongue, while the more stately spectacle continued to be given in Latin. It was and always had been the language of the common people, and had consequently undergone a deterioration in purity and structure, analogous to that of the lingua romana rustica spoken in the Roman provinces under the empire, in which process prepositions took the place of inflections for case, and auxiliaries the place of inflection for voice and tense. It is possible that to complete the parallel, there existed, side by side with the degraded Saxon, a literary and inflected English language. But be this as it may, the time was now come for its revival as a national tongue, and the speech of our forefathers, as well as their ecclesiastical and civil polity, was to feel the developing and renovating influences of the age. It is not a little remarkable that the language and free institutions of England should have thus grown up together. The name of Wycliffe is closely associated with both movements, and though his fame as the day-star of the Reformation 
has thrown somewhat into the shade his literary achievements, it must never be forgotten that his influence as a reformer was mainly due to his English translation of the scriptures, and that in his controversial attack upon the strongholds of superstition and priestly monopoly, he had, as it were, to forge the weapon with which he fought. But it was not till the century was entering its fourth quarter, and the reign of Edward III was drawing to a close, that Wycliffe's English writings became generally known, and long before that time we have abundant proof that English was taking the place of French, wrestling with it and overcoming it. Higdon, already mentioned as a literary man of this century, tells us, writing before the beginning of the French War, that in his time, boys at school, against the usage and manner of all other nations, be compelled to leave their own language and to construe their Latin lessons and their things into French. His translator, Trevisa, who lived at the latter end of Edward III's reign, in commenting on this passage, tells us that it was not so then, in all the grammar schools children leaveth French and learneth in English. In the memorable year 1362, it was decreed in a statute itself worded in French, that henceforth the proceedings in the law courts should be conducted in English. The reason given that the French tongue is much unknown in England. Three years later the Lord Chancellor opened Parliament in an English speech. But in its growth and development, language follows laws of its own, irrespective of artificial stimulants or checks. During the long struggle against the domination of foreigners in England, which took place in the reign of Henry III, a complete fusion had been effected between the Norman and English elements of the race. The far-sighted measures of Simon de Montfort had united the nobles with the commonalty by giving them each a common voice in legislation, and the great French war in Edward III's reign, by the self-reliance which it engendered and the antipathies which it fostered, stamped forever upon the English nation its insular, united, and independent character. It began to be felt, not consciously perhaps, but instinctively, that the time was come for England to have a language and a literature of her own, and Chaucer, like other men of genius, seized upon and gave expression to the feeling of the age. In his Testament of Love he thus apologizes for writing in English, let then clerkes indeeten in Latin, and let Frenchmen in their French also indeeten their quaint terms, for it is keenly to their mouths. But let us shew our fantasias in such words as were learned then of our dumbest tongue. But some twenty years before the appearance of Chaucer's great work, the Canterbury Tales, the vision of Piers Plowman had become the delight of the English people. This may fairly be called the first genuine English poem, for we had before it only the dreary, versified histories of Wace and Robert of Gloucester, more prosy than prose itself, and Norman rather than English. The vision dates from the year 1365. Tradition gives the author a name, Robert Langland, and a birthplace, Cleebury Mortimer in Shropshire and he is also said on the same doubtful authority to have been a secular priest, or, as we should say, a country parson. 
he wrote in the words and idioms of the alliterative measures of the old Anglo-Saxon poetry, perhaps still familiar to the people's ear, but in the plan of his poem he had adopted the allegorical impersonations of the Trouvère. Alliteration, or the stringing together of words or syllables beginning with the same letter, is his only poetical artifice. As for rhyme, he discards it altogether. In tone and sentiment, and independence of thought, as well as in diction and subject matter, this extraordinary work is thoroughly English, and breathes the fresh bracing air of the Malvern Hills, among which the ploughman fell asleep to dream his dream. He is always in deep, not to say in grim earnest. He finds the times out of joint, full of contrasts and contradictions. And marvellously me met, as I may you tell, all the wealth of the world and its woe both. The world lying in wickedness, misery, and corruption, and the church, which should be the salt of the earth, among its chief corruptors, more worldly than the world itself. It was he who commenced the great revolt in asserting the supremacy of reason, conscience, and holy scripture as the guides of faith and conduct. He undermines the sacerdotal claim to the direction of the inner life of man. Penances and pilgrimages are nothing worth in comparison of charity, which with St. Paul he held to be greater than faith, and an image of the mercy of God which he says, all the wickedness of the world that man might work or think is no more to the mercy of God than in the sea a glade spark. Poverty he loves, but it is honest, hard-working poverty, not the ostentatious professional poverty of the mendicants. Yet he is no precursor or forestaller of Wycliffe and Wycliffe's greatest work, for he never attacks the doctrine of papacy, but only its social and political abuses. God amend the Pope, that pilleth holy church, and claimeth by force to be king and keeper over Christendom. A striking contrast to this half-mythical and impersonal Langland was Geoffrey Chaucer, the other and greater poet of the age. Passing his days in the thick of the interests, the business, and the pleasures of the world, ambassador, courtier, traveler, place-hunter, tried by all vicissitudes of fortune, now living in splendor, now hard-pinched for his daily bread, now in disgrace and in prison, now again restored to royal favor, he saw life in all its many-sided and many-hued variety, and reproduced his impressions in undying colors in the picture gallery of the Canterbury Tales. There is a tradition that Chaucer, Foissart, Boccaccio, and Petrarch met together at Milan at the marriage of Prince Lionel with the daughter of the great Visconti. Be that as it may, Chaucer was familiar with the writings of the two Italians, and also with the vision of Dante, who had died some sixty years before our English poet wrote his great work, and he was well acquainted with all the local and vernacular languages which were everywhere springing up in the languages derived from the Romance Latin he borrowed from the Norman Roman, from the ancient classics, from the popular legends. But his real sympathy is with the spirit and genius of his own times, and in those portions of his works which are of most enduring interest, he drew upon his own varied experience for his materials. 
Thus, though the Canterbury Tales first appeared some years after the death of Edward III, they may be taken as illustrating the social life of the latter half of the 14th century, and there is hardly one of its phases, hardly an age or condition, which Chaucer has not fixed forever in that comedy of manners. In his power of creating a character at once the type of a class and a living, breathing individual, in the variety of his gifts, in the pathos, the humor, the brightness, the fancifulness, the profusion of his genius, he is second to one only of his countrymen, and no unworthy precursor of the golden age of English poetry, being indeed, in the words of Tennyson, the first warbler whose sweet breath preluded those melodious bursts which fill the spacious times of great Elizabeth with sounds that echo still. As the plays of Shakespeare are to the Canterbury Tales, so is the prose of Milton and Bolingbroke to the rugged and half-formed, but vigorous, massive, and pathetic language of Wycliffe. It might be hard to name two men more unlike in work, character, and circumstances than the contemporary fathers of English poetry and English prose. But there is one point at which the two are in sympathy. One ideal, at least, is common to them both. The picture which Chaucer has left us of the parish priest as he should be, entitles the poet to claim spiritual kindred with the great reformer. That portrait might have been drawn to the life from Wycliffe himself, not the stormy Wycliffe of his early controversial days, but the lowly, subdued, and tender pastor of the village flock of Lutterworth. End of section 40. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. in Encino, California, November 2022. End of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton.